You're listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 3800 Marlton Pike. For more information, check out circleofhope.net. In the, probably this time of year, in 2010, I was a professor at Eastern University and I was chairing the Department of Counseling Psychology. I directed three master's programs there. And one of my colleagues, friend of mine, began to behave oddly, I thought. And I didn't know what that was about. And uh, I thought the best way to handle it was to see if we could spend some time together. So I began inviting her out to lunch. And it just never happened couldn't get her to come out to lunch with me and uh, was very quizzical. I counted her a good friend. Um, And then in the spring of that year, she came to a meeting that we had. It was actually my first time back. Rod and I had had to fly out to Arizona because his mom died and she was really a mom to me too and I came back from that meeting into my department and there was my friend and the only way I know how to describe this is she was sort of in her own nervous way leading a revolt and um They had some really tough things to say to me. And I tried to gather myself, you know, I'd led this group. I'd led this group when another of our friends had lost his father and I actually taught his classes for about a month and a half while he was overcoming that. Sent fruit baskets to other people when they'd lost folks. Now I was among my friends and not only had they not done anything about this, they didn't even mention it and now they were on the attack and I was baffled. I was completely baffled. I couldn't figure out if if they wanted to change things in the department, why had they not spoken to me, especially this one friend because she lived in our house. She eaten dinner with me and my kids many times and um, it was it was troubling I went to try to speak to my friend immediately after this meeting and she refused to speak to me she has not spoken to me in the last nine years except in the context of other people I could tell you lots of other (laughs) stories. It was a really difficult time. I went to my dean. She was very supportive, but sort of didn't know how to help me. Went to my provost. He was very supportive. But ultimately, I resigned from my position. I was ready to leave the university. And I still could not figure out what had happened other than that my friend is a very anxious person 
which I don't think I really knew then, because I'm pretty well programmed to deal with anxious people. My mom was chronically anxious, and it really made a difference in my life at a very deep level. I was always taking care of a very anxious woman from my earliest remembrances. I can look at that incident in my life from a lot of different angles. One angle would be my friend and some of the other folks that she sort of allied with her against me in the department. It was kind of, it, it, it framed itself as a squabble about how we were training therapists. And um, that never seemed to ring true to me, but anyway. I could look at that from the perspective of, of they won. My friend is chair of that department now at the university to this day. The other woman that sort of partnered with her, who I'd brought into the department as well, is now a dean at that very college. So I could really look at that incident as a horrible defeat. I could have lots of resentment. But the truth is that what came after that was my dean and my provost, who were good friends, figured out how to get me a sabbatical, fastest one ever awarded in the university. Uh, <laughs> and so I had this year to study and recuperate. And then my dean took me over to visit the uh, interim dean of the seminary and they plopped down the uh, project that became really my life's work, which was designing some new doctoral programs. So not only did I get to jump into a place where I got to use my creativity in much broader ways, got to work with doctoral students, got to decide exactly what was good therapy and how I would teach it to people and implement it, and build a team around me that is still going strong. So the other angle to look at this is, I ended up in Clover, right? <laughs> it was wonderful. And those, those next seven years of work were really fulfilling for me. And I still go back, in fact, just this last week, I'm, I was back, I just teach, I retired, and I teach one class a year now. And so I was back with students last week and it's just like getting a pep talk every day from somebody who loves you to be in the midst of those colleagues and with those students. So what was the harm? <laughs> I want to talk about forgiveness today because I think it's really an important topic for us. And even though I've spent many sleepless nights praying through the midst of all that turmoil, I, I think what I learned most is that you just give forgiveness. It's not dependent on a good apology, and it better not be dependent upon good behavior, right? Often when we think about forgiving, I think our focus gets stuck on the other person. I'd still be waiting nine years later. She can't do it. I don't think she can see that. I, I really don't. Um, 
So we get stuck on the person who hurt us, and then we're caught in this perpetual cycle of looking backward. Our minds return to the pain. We go over the actions that harmed us, and bitterness just grows and grows inside of us. And instead of looking backwards like this, I, I want to explore this morning with you how we might move our focus to just giving the gift of forgiveness out of our own choosing. It takes work, but this is good work, and it's really well worth it, worth all our efforts, according to psychological research, and I would say according to my own experience. The reported health benefits alone are really significant. So I want to explore this angle on forgiving. I think it's an invitation. Did that get up there yet? There. I think it's an invitation from God to us, an invitation to growth. Forgiving can be a pathway to turning our suffering to joy, uh, but it takes mindful attention to pull this off. And we have to go step by step with God, by God's spirit at work within us, or we can easily slide into acting out of obligation, shutting down our feelings, and perpetuating the trauma inside of us. This is especially true for people caught in abuse. And I think within the Christian community, we've messed this up so thoroughly that I want to just say right at the top of this, if you're in an abusive situation, what I'm saying today really needs to be taken with a grain of salt, and you need to get help to get out of that abusive situation. I'd be glad to talk to you later about that. But I also think that even for those of us who are abused, we need to learn to forgive, and we can. We need to go slowly. We need to go prayerfully. But ultimately, all the research shows that we really um, uh, can't do anything other than forgive, or we stay completely stuck. Um, and a lack of forgiveness can harm us perhaps even more than the original harm that was done to us. We live in need of protection from evil. Isn't that, the, um, that obvious from our daily news cycle? There is bad stuff happening every moment. It's a really anxious time. So I'm hoping we can look at forgiveness together and see if we can sort of cast some light. So I want to read you this poem from C.S. Lewis. I think he offers us an image that is very helpful in this pursuit. Here's what he says. This is from Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing and you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come 
and live in it himself. So I think this is a lovely image for what happened to me. Sorry, I'm not getting my page turned here. And I want to tell you more of the story. So when I was first coming into my study of psychology, oops, one more. When I was first coming into my study of psychology and Christianity, I became involved with a professional organization called CAPS, the Christian Association for Psychological Studies. This organization has been my professional home ever since. At one of my first conferences there, I met Ev Worthington. He's a voracious researcher and a professor from the um, Virginia Commonwealth University. Ev was one of the earliest researchers in the field of forgiveness, and he's really been at it for 20 years, and it's really exploded in psychology. Um, and Ev came to this study in an intensely personal way. His elderly mother was sexually violated and brutally murdered in 1996. Five years later, his brother, who had found his mother's body, committed suicide spurred on by the traumatic event of discovering her. Ev has worked at forgiving his mother's murderer, and he has worked at forgiving himself for not being able to help his brother as a psychologist. That's a big deal. I'm going to borrow heavily from Ev's work today as I talk about forgiveness. Here's a bit of a lengthy quote that I, I think sets us up well. Wounds are part of life, just like dying is part of life, yet, is, yet it is anxiety producing to dwell on those certainties. So we often create an irrational belief that protects us from having to face the negative. We hope that our irrational belief will give us hope. It seems on the surface that it should work, but to the contrary, it undermines hope. The belief is, I have a right to experience a life free of pain and suffering and filled with joy. We claim that right because one, we try to live justly, righteously, treating others most of the time with respect, we believe this, too, because we are especially strong or skilled or bright or good. We have some way we get that. We believe this irrational stuff, three, because we are Christians and God loves us and has a plan for our lives. There is a disconnect between these beliefs, which power our daily lives, and any rational analysis of our condition in life. When we hold these beliefs and live as if they were true, this whole idea that we can live a suffering, a suffering free life, we expect no pain, no suffering, no unfair treatment, and in general, a just world. However, our just world usually overlooks any of our own hurtful behaviors. Our expectations are thus often violated, and so we look for someone to blame." End quote. I want to suggest that this image of the old cottage and God's invitation feels like a huge leap 
or even a crushing obligation. Things get really messy when we're hurt and we are confronted with what often feels like God's demand that we forgive the unforgivable. So jump with me for a minute and remember a couple of things that I think a lot of you who've heard me speak before will find old hat. We understand our world in the conscious and an unconscious experience. It's just the way human beings work. Two levels, that which we're aware of, but there's a lot going on in us that we are unaware of in the unconscious. Neuroscience has advanced so that we can even take pictures of this happening in our brains. Uh, we have area of our, areas of our brains that are active and interact with the world completely outside of our, our knowing. They input processes from our senses, and we have a conscious understanding of what's, coming, of what's going on about who I am, but we also have other things going on that light up our brains that don't fit with these conscious thoughts about ourselves. That's why when Ev was talking in that long quote, he could say that we, we can carry these sort of irrational beliefs, and so we're, we're a little gobsmacked when, when something happens, like what happened with my friends and colleagues. Again, from a theological perspective, I think this is where we really get to know ourselves that this divide in us is the result of what it means to be separated from God. We're even separated inside of our very own selves. We don't know ourselves. And in that divide, we get really confused. But boy, let somebody violate us and you're gonna find out what you really think. <laughs> you know, I wrestled a lot of nights trying to sort out what I was gonna say to these people, what I was going to do, what could God possibly want we are fragmented, and knowing ourselves is hard work. It's worthy work. I think God invites us to it, and we can learn surprising things about ourselves along the way. So, very famously, in Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching about forgiving, and Peter, his sort of a pet student, or I think maybe Peter thought he was, he's always bursting out with things, right? And so he blurts out, okay, how about if I forgive somebody seven times in a single day? And Jesus responds equally as quickly, 70 times seven. Jesus' reply is sort of mind-boggling, 70 times seven? That's 490 times. That must have felt like living in a house that was getting stretched beyond any limit to Peter, right? <laughs> Suddenly a wall was falling down. At first glance, certainly this is extreme. Wouldn't this be abuse to sit in this kind of situation where you have to forgive somebody 490 times? And again, if you're in an abusive situation, let's talk later. But I would contend that I've had to forgive my friend at least 490 times in these last nine years. Because darn it, it just keeps coming back up in me, right? I think Jesus was just doing one of his natural observations. You're gonna need to do this more times than you think. This is how we work. Again, Jesus really gets us and speaks to us. 
So when you or I attempt to forgive someone who has hurt us, we are likely to succeed only in fits and starts. I may forgive my friend today and find that thoughts of her come back. I feel the injustice all over again, the resentment, and tomorrow, well, I need to forgive again and again, maybe even just by noon on one day and again before I have dinner. Where can we expect to find the fortitude for those kinds of efforts? Well, here's where our living houses really get under new construction is what I would contend. In this very process, in trying to follow Jesus' call to us to forgive, we do well to turn to God and not to ourselves. We do well to remember that we are forgiven first, deeply, fully, completely, without regard for our deserving. That's the only place that you can learn to forgive from. God forgives us, and so from this truth and this experience, we forgive others and forgive and forgive. This is the hidden invitation of God. God wants to enlarge us in the struggle to forgive as we have been forgiven. In Peter's story, thinking that 70 times 7 is, a, or that 7 is a good number, I think he is again just jumping in and finding out this surprise from Jesus um, that it's just got to keep going. So what I would, I think, ask you to remember when you're trying to forgive someone is that you should not give up on yourself and consider yourself a failure until you've at least repeated it 490 times. Okay? Keep at it. That's the message. So now a little bit from Ev's research. This is, he, he created, he, he interviewed tons of people, and he's really a statistician too, so he dug into all this data and came up with what he calls the REACH approach, R-E-A-T-C-H. And you see that around that wheel, I, I put it in a wheel because I want to emphasize this 490 times thing. We're going to zoom round and round. But he wants us to start with recall, the R in reach, um, recalling the hurt. In our culture, we often think of this um, process as an individual personal encounter. It was between me and my friend. But it really wasn't. It was a whole rift in the culture of the college where I worked. And um, there's, there's still damage there, unfortunately. But let me walk you through what Ev discovered in his research and what I found really helpful in my own cycle. And we go far too quickly through this wheel. We go far too quickly past recalling the hurt. And I think that's our first mistake. When I came to my situation with my colleagues, I came set up to mess this up. Because <laughs> I was so used to taking care of all their anxiety. 
and I was used to really overworking as their chair. Uh, I was, I really needed to learn how to lead differently. I was carrying way too much of the burden. And um, some of those folks have actually moved on from the university because others began to see that they weren't carrying much of the burden of our corporate work as well. But, um, but this recalling of the hurt is, I think, heavy lifting for us because we either, we can, we can blame the person and build our justifiable, maybe even righteous case for how they've hurt us, but we're dwelling on them still and all that they did, and we're not really dealing with the hurt within us. I needed to recall what happened to me, the doubt that was cast on me as a good person, as a person you could just talk to. I mean, come on, I'm a psychologist, and I'm dealing with psychologists, and they're not talking to me? It was crazy, I thought. I still think it's crazy, but I had to recall the hurt, and that takes a lot of work. And the second step is even more challenging because it, it pulls us into trying to empathize with the other and it really pulls us beyond that practice of trying to build our case. When I was trying to build my case with my colleagues, what I was doing by not recalling or letting the real hurt sink in and, and knowing it, I, I think I learned a ton about even my own past and how I was set up to carry other people's anxiety by my long experiences with my mom. It was a great freedom to just know that again. I think I knew that in some ways. But this experience caused me to know it again and more deeply and know that I could still love her and I could still love them. Maybe from afar, but I could still love them. And and knowing too that I didn't need to keep building this case about me being a good person. That was inconsequential to God. He had chosen me, loved me, made me whole, poured grace into my life, landed me in a whole much a whole better job. I got more money, I got a title, I got I got tons more, which did help a little with <laughs> <laughs> not uh, feeling quite the level of resentment with my old colleagues. But anyway, you get the drift, right? But this second step is then to try to understand what's going on for the other, to actually empathize with the person who hurt you. And what I came to understand was, yeah, these folks were acting out of their anxiety. I needed to learn that I'm sort of this much bigger personality on the outside than I am on the inside. I'm living on the inside. But on the outside, I'm casting this vision for how we train students. I'm pushing my colleagues to be doing therapy while they're also living their academic lives, which has a lot of stress to it. And it, it became obvious to me that I was asking them, not for anything that I wasn't giving myself, but I think it was too much for my one colleague, my friend, who's no longer my friend, but she, she's too anxious. And she's gone on being anxious in all kinds of other places in the university. And slowly I hear that back from other friends. And um, I needed to get to the place where I could empathize with her and with some of my other colleagues. That's hard work 
right? That, um, that we begin to try to understand what was going on for them regardless of what was going on for me. I, I at one point asked my friend, uh, in, we were in a meeting, the university called in mediators. This was really a big deal. And, and I said, just can't we just do Matthew 18? Will you tell me where this started and what you're talking about? I said that, and my friend said, oh, Gwen, we've talked. And I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to be honest here. I don't know when we've talked. <laughs> and uh, so you get the drift here, right? I needed to figure out what was going on with her. It really wasn't all about me. She needed something that I wasn't supplying in some ways. And I knew quite a bit about her personal history, so I began to piece that together. And that was very, that was very helpful. But then we come to this place, according to Ev, where you just have to give it. It's an altruistic gift. You give the forgiveness. You just say, I will. And it's a gift, not based on apology, not based on good behavior. You give it, and then you commit to it, because remember, it's 490 times. And what do you do after you commit to it? You hold on. <laughs> because <laughs> this is the cycle we human be beings go through with forgiving. And Jesus invites us into this. We can take any grief this world gives us and turn it into a place to learn more deeply about ourselves. If we're able to listen deeply, I think you'll find out, as I did, that it's here at these junctures that keep us awake at night that we can hear God's whisper of love coming through again and again. During that sabbatical, I took a seven-day silent retreat, and I still have bits of those, those days that come back to me. The last thing my spiritual director suggested I do on that retreat was just write down whatever phrases, go be quiet and listen. And so... I'm quiet and listening after seven days of not speaking. And one of the things that came to me very clearly was to give up my drivenness. What that meant for me had a lot to do with this whole experience with my colleagues. I was pushing them too hard because I always push too hard. <laughs> and I don't need to. I've been pushing too hard since I was about six years old and I first dove into a swimming pool and tried to be the fastest person across the pool. I've been pushing too hard in every way in my life. And it's result, I mean, our culture kind of rewards that. And I, you know, you get it, right? But God was saying, you know, you've gotten all this good in your life, not via your own construction. Let me walk with you. It's much more freeing. We are safe in God's arms. We are sheltered in his grace. He is making you and me into a living palace, not just a cottage. He's got this. Into a living palace in which he is delighted to dwell. God in us. You really can forgive. 
Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.